Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name, written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. So the next section is subordinate gods. This is especially important in Mormonism and not necessarily unique, but it is an interesting dis distinction. So if I wonder if you could start with uh, a concept that I think all Mormons have heard, capital G gods versus small g god. Yeah, and first of all, in, in the philosophical tradition of Christianity, or um, and, and possibly in Judaism, some forms of Judaism only, the very concept that there would be subordinate gods, that is, small g gods, is just nonsensical. There can't be because, again, there's only one god, and that one god is the superlative maximal possibility of being. And by definition, there can only be one of those. <laughs> so using the word god to refer to something less than that is simply a mistake and a misunderstanding. Um, but there are scriptures that refer to gods and they refer to, to gods that are subordinate to the most high God. Um, and when they refer to gods in this sense, they're referring to usually to a kind of familial concept. There are sons of God in the Hebrew Bible and they are referred to as gods. Um, they're referred to as Elohim or Alim. They are referred to um Never as as Yahweh or Jehovah, because that's a, pr a proper name. But Elohim itself means gods, and is often re used in the Hebrew Bible to refuse to refer to those who are members of the Council of Gods, that um, is overseen by El, and as as the right hand man um, later in Hebrew thought, Jehovah. So um, we have in the Mormon tradition also. Um, this concept of the Council of God. And um, the, the Mormon scriptures speak of the, the, the Council of Gods before the world was. And of course, Mormon scriptures, you can find it in, in DNC um, 132 in the Book of Abraham, and um, in DNC 121, um, at, at the very least, the concept of a Council of Gods. So you have. Um, gods who are sons of God, and and I, I know in these days it, it sounds patriarchal to refer to it that way, but that's how the scriptures actually use it. They they um, they really don't refer to the um, Beth Elohim or the the Beth Elohim would be the daughters of God, but um, the concept now I think we would want to include in Mormonism, we'd want to include women. And so it's not just sons of God, it's sons and daughters of God. And when we say that we are children of God, we are inherently saying that we are gods with small g's. Um, but there's no question that the Hebrew Bible and the, and the New Testament and the Mormon scriptures um, have the term gods and refer to them as such. And so I'm, I begin by asking, is it possible that there are such beings, or are they philosophically excluded, and what would they be if we're referring to them? And so I, I give the kind of explanation and definition that we've been discussing. Excellent. All right. Again, this might apply more to the next section, but just a question I wrote down here is, we would generally refer to the God that we are talking about here with the capital G and us with the small g. Are we eternally subordinate to God? 
And if so, I thought one of the revolutionary things of Mormon thought was that God wanted peers and not necessarily slaves or subordinates, and that God might be more like kind of a, a guru rather than a king. Well, actually, he's a father, and he's seeking for his sons and daughters to grow up and and be everything that he and and at least in Mormonism his wife are. And so the idea here is a familiar familial notion, and um, God is seeking peers. Of course, we aren't peers of God, <laughs> and we've got a lot to learn before we're capable of the kind of mastery of the cosmos and the kind of love that God expresses. Um, but we're working on it, and and so at least in the Mormon tradition, and I have argued in the in more broadly in in important parts of the Christian tradition, this notion of um, gods begins as a notion of subordinate, but it is actually a god who is seeking peers and who seeks to share everything that he is and has with us, so that we are everything that he is. Now, in the philosophical tradition of Christianity, in much of Christian theology, that is just unthinkable. It's logically impossible. And, but that is the concept, and so I've introduced it here so that we can discuss it later. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to the next section here. So that logically leads into what is referred to in this section as apotheosis or human gods. So apotheosis is, what is that a a Greek term, I guess, means become, yeah, becoming divine, basically, or becoming God. Apotheosis is, is both a Greek and kind of the way that the Romans thought of becoming gods. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of different views of gods. You've got the Greek pantheon, you've got the Roman pantheon. Um, and I use the term here to distinguish it from what most Christians are saying, and they use the term theosis. Now, um, Later on in the third volume, I'm going to give further definition to this and, and merge it with theosis. But right now, I just want to talk about the fact that um, we have this aphorism given to us by um, the prophet Joseph or by uh, Lorenzo Snow, who said, "As God now is, man may become." Um, and uh, he also began as as man now is, God once was. And that's the back. That's a whole other discussion, though. Yeah. Well, but as part of this discussion, because what we're saying is that we have within us, like an oak, the capacity to be an oak. But if we're an oak seed, we don't look a whole lot like an oak tree. In fact, just looking at an oak seed and putting it in a box of other seeds, you couldn't tell which one's going to be an oak and which one's going to be a daisy. And so maybe that's the kind of distinction we're looking for here um, in comparison to God. Because, you know, um, I, I think most people would want to say, we're a long way from the perfection of God. We're a long way from the glory of God. And even speaking of humans being like God is is just blasphemy. Well, it's offensive. You know, we can use the term blasphemy, but the English term is offensive. But it's also logically impossible. If God is that being who created everything out of nothing, by definition, only one being can do that. And it's impossible for that which is created to become uncreated. And since God is essentially uncreated, we don't have the capacity to become what God is, ever. Logically, we can't become what God is. Our nature, our very, and, and this is the, uh, the philosophical term, ontologically, we're different. And ontology just refers to the way that we 
we exist or the way that we be, okay? Because ontos is the, the Greek word for being or be. Um, and so ontology is the is the study um, of being or the way that we exist. Um, and so the Christian tradition has insisted that God exists of necessity. God cannot fail to exist, um, whether logically or just the way that God is. It's impossible that God failed to exist. But they've looked around and said, you know, we pop into existence at some point when we're born, and that's the first time that we exist. And we are inherently, the way that we exist is called contingent being. That is, we depend on something else for our existence. And you can't have a being that depends on something else for its existence could never be the kind of thing that God is. And so I think it's important for Mormons in particular to understand this distinction but then it would be problematic to say that Jesus was both God and man because he is essentially both created and also essentially uncreated. And to say that he is both is a logical contradiction. And so the very kind of argument that I've just made, the greatest minds in Christian history spent centuries trying to unravel as to how precisely one being could be both God and man, both created and uncreated. <laughs> And they wrestled with it, and in my view, within the Christian tradition, have never been able to resolve it precisely because at its very center, it's a logical contradiction. Whereas I think the Mormon approach, um, that humans exist of necessity, that is, we are ontologically necessary in some sense, um, simply dissolves the problem, at least in one sense. There are other problems that arise that, that we must deal with, but um, at least this gives us some kind of a way to talk about that. And the notion is that, that, and this was very well established in, in early Christianity, and it's more talked about in the Eastern Orthodox tradition of theosis, that is, of human beings becoming genuinely deified and becoming um, infused with God's glory to such an extent that it's appropriate to refer to human beings as gods. So there you have it. A couple other concepts in here I thought would be interesting to discuss in, in Mormon thought. Uh, one of the main distinctions is that humans and God are not wholly other, as in traditional Christian thought, meaning God is uncreated and we are created creatures. So a creator creature is that we are also co-eternal with God, meaning that in some form, which isn't exactly defined, we have always existed just as God has always existed and he didn't necessarily create our base essence Right. Whatever whatever is essential to our identity as the being that we are. So, for instance, the eternal being, Corey Osler, um, obviously you weren't known as Corey Osler before I gave you that name, but who you are that was not created and has always existed without beginning, um, which I think is ingenious. Um, it, moreover, it just it tastes good. Yeah. No, it's it's one of the best things about Mormonism, in my view. In my view as well. All right. So, but having said that, I mean, we you probably get a lot more into this into your third volume. So, do you kind of progress on your own into becoming a god, meaning you become that in Mormon view, or is it something that God has to give you that you could never get on your own? And, and it's an interesting discussion, which I address more in the second volume. Um, I, I suggest that the problem that Adam and Eve had is precisely that they wanted to become gods without God. <laughs> They, they wanted to do it on their own, like, you know, they were like little kids, and it's all little kids go through this phase where they don't want your help. They want to do it on their own. Well, it's an essential phase in learning and growing up, but eventually 
um, you're going to have to realize that no person is an island and you can't do it on your own. You can't even exist on your own. Um, you know, maybe a human being could exist on his or her own for a while, but the kind of existence would be so incomplete that it really wouldn't be human existence. The reality is, I, and I argue for this in both the second and third volumes, the notion I think uh, that humans become gods is offensive precisely because they have this notion of this metaphor. There are these planets out there um, that God hasn't quite gotten to yet, and we have to fly out there on our own after we graduate from from whatever high school we're in. Um, and we leave the, the town that we're in, that is we go off planet, and then we go populate this this new world that God hasn't quite gotten to yet, and we do it on our own. We're now fully um, capable on our own of doing everything without God. Um, Self-reliance leads to this kind of thinking. (laughs) What God is after is somebody who is as independent from others as he is. That's a complete misunderstanding in my view. And what we're really talking about is the fact that that when we talk about deification, what we're actually talking about is becoming one with God in such an intensely interpersonal sense that whatever he thinks, we think. Whatever he knows, we know. Whatever he does, we do. Just as is true of the members of the Godhead. And we become divine by being so infused with the light and glory of God that he dwells within us. That is, he takes up a boat or habitation within us so that we live a co-shared life. And so it's this is a form of, of intimate co-dwelling with each other. The the technical Christian term that they use for the Father and the Son is co-inherence. They inherit in each other. And I would suggest that the Mormon notion of deification is co-inherence. We've all been invited into the same relationship that is shared by Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we're not capable of that kind of relationship. And so the kinds of things that we're going through are to teach us and give us opportunities not to, to learn, but not just to learn so that we understand how to be gods, but to actually change our, our being, our way of being, and the way that we relate to others so that we relate to them in such a loving and completely accepting way that we co-inherent each other. We share our lives in such a complete way that the life, light, glory, and intelligence that is in us is shared, and we open to God completely to allow him into our life and he accepts us completely into his life. And so it's the exact opposite of what most people think of as deification rather than being self-reliance independence. (laughs) It is the most loving, intimate sharing of life, knowledge, power, and and intelligence that is conceivable. And God seeks to give us that because this is the greatest thing that can be. The greatest thing that could possibly be given is his love and light and intelligence and power. Everything that he has and everything that he is, he shares with us. And when we open to receive him into our lives, we begin on a process of sanctification. The moment we open is called in the Christian tradition of Protestantism, justification. And the process of growing toward God in the light and glory is called sanctification. And the realization of that is called deification. (laughs) Okay. And so what we're talking about, and I believe this is the, the 
the real inner genius of Mormonism. By the way, um, th there's a good deal, again, among the Eastern Orthodox theologians that is in this type of language. The Wesley brothers all, in Methodism also spoke of this a great deal. Um, and, and there are also elements of this in Catholicism. Um, and so w what I want to say is, you know, this, in my view, this is really the inner logic of Mormonism. And, and we see it elsewhere in Christianity. And our, our goal is to, is to learn to love in such a complete way that there are no barriers interpersonally. And in order, and to share fully and, and be fully what, what God is. It's a gift that he's giving to us. He seeks to give to us. And we become everything that our father is, the way that his son or daughter becomes what their parents are. Now, they may not be anxious to become what their parents are because they're going to look at them and they're not real thrilled about that. But that's, you know, that's the analogy. <laughs> Next heading is God as a relationship of unity among a plurality of persons. Would you say that deification or apotheosis in Mormon thought, are we becoming part of the Godhead in a way, or is it not that? Because I know God is, at least what you wrote here, I guess I should read out loud, is Mormonism asserts that these lesser deities cannot surpass God the Father, but they are of the same kind and may participate in the fullness of the divine nature. Clearly, you know, if God is progressing and we are progressing, he can, he's eternally progress, or he's progressing and however far ahead he is, he's going to stay about that far ahead, I assume. But are we invited into the Godhead or is it not that same thing? No, he's not going to be far ahead at all. He's going to be what we are. And we will not, in terms of subordination, the subordination will be one of gratitude and one of recognizing that he brought us to be what he is as a gift not that that we don't share in some form of glory he he has or that we fail to share in some intelligence or knowledge that he has rather we're subordinate to him because all glory will always be due to the father glory will always be due to the son our gratitude and glory will always be due to the holy ghost because of what they've done for us however every property of divinity of of what it is to be god that they have we will have and so it's more like saying that, that the, the son becomes what the father is. You'll be everything that I am. You'll be a father. You'll have experiences of raising children. You'll be stretched beyond where you want to go by little brats who don't want to follow what you're saying, and you love them so much you can't even bear to think of hurting them. They'll be everything you are, except they won't be the one who raised you and gave you life <laughs> and and taught you and was there when you tied your first shoe and held your bike when you when he pushed you down the hill and hoped you didn't fall over and those kind of things so it's more the the, the kind of it's more a sense of god will always be due our worship and 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 gratitude and and give all glory to him to recognize the gift that he has given to us to share everything that he is does that clear it up for you it does so the subordination is, is a mistake. Speaking of subordination usually means that you're lesser than or you're not everything that the Father is. Um, and, and the truth is, I don't think that we would ever say, oh, yeah, worship me and not the Father. But in worshiping, I, I, say, I would say that in worshiping the Son, we are worshiping the Father. We couldn't possibly worship the, the, the Son without the Father because they're so unified. 
it will be the same when we become gods. If a person were to have gratitude toward us or to see and, and adore our glory, they couldn't possibly do that without first recognizing that the glory comes from God the Father through the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost. And so they will always be included. They couldn't possibly be excluded in any way. Yeah, so there can't, the subordination that we're talking about is not an ontological subordination. In other words, it's not a difference in the way that we exist, the kind of being that we have, um, or everything that we are, or any properties that we have. The subordination is one of worship and gratitude. That is a good thing to point out. In reading some people's reviews or criticisms of the book, that's one thing I think some people have misunderstood about your view. So good to clarify that. I think so too. No matter how many times I explain it, they want to go back and have a criticism. So they're, they're kind of deaf to that kind of an, of an observation. <laughs> All right. So in this God as a relationship of unity among a plurality of persons, the only topics that I wrote down to discuss, and you can go into more things if you want, is it's kind of what other people would refer to kind of a social Trinitarianism. And if you could kind of explain what that is, and another question I wrote down in relation to that is, so does God mean all the members of the Godhead together only, or one of them? If they weren't all together in unity, would any of them be God? To answer the last question... We're thinking of using the word God in various different ways, and clearly people use God to refer to God the Father alone. Um, they use it to refer to Jesus alone. They refer use it to refer to this bearer of beings that's the greatest possible. So we use the word God in a lot of different ways. But what I want to point out is the differences have important consequences. Um, and so, properly speaking, the answer is no. There's no such thing as, as the Father being fully God without the Son also being fully God, um, in, as things now are. Um, they, we, we can't really separate them out. And in pragmatic matters, whenever we deal with one, we deal with all three. So uh, what I like to say is we can make an intellectual distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but when we're praying or doing anything, pragmatically in our lives, there's really no distinction because we're always dealing with all, all three at once. <laughs> And so what I want to say is there's no pragmatic distinction. But there are logical distinctions, and I want to begin making those kinds of logical distinctions. And, and so I want to make the kind of distinctions that when I say necessarily, the Godhead could not become a human being come to earth and die. Because it's not one person. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's all three together necessarily when we talk about the Godhead or the Trinity. But we it is possible for the Son to become a human being, become mortal, and die. I mean, that's a standard Christianity, right? <laughs> and so um, what's true of the Godhead as a whole is not necessarily true of its members. The notion that what's true of, of any one God must be true of all of them as a collection is known. Um, it's just, it, it, it's a logical um, error, um, a logical fallacy um, and so, you know, thinking that I just want to clear up that kind of logical confusion is really what I'm doing here. In Mormonism, we believe that God is embodied with a actual physical body, 
you know, not exactly like ours, but definitely is limited in space. He is contained somewhat. So what limits do having a body place on each member of the Godhead? So I'm going to back up just a bit. To say that God has a body, clearly the Godhead does not have a body. <laughs> right. Clearly, if I'm talking to a person who believes that God is the Trinity and I say, yeah, God has a body, and they're thinking, you're saying the Trinity has a body? I think you're really foolish. Um, clearly, in that sense, God does not have a body. And it's not essential that God have a body of, in the way that God now has a body. Because God also is growing in a sense and has taken a, a mortal body upon him and been glorified through resurrection in Mormon thought. And so when we say God has a body, what we really mean is that at some point in time, the father became mortal like the son did and died and was resurrected. Later, the son became mortal, died and was resurrected. And at least according to Joseph Smith, at some point, the Holy Ghost will become mortal, die and become resurrected as we're all going through right now. And so um, what we're talking about in terms of God having a body is this process of growth. But it is false to say that in order to be fully divine, the divine person must have a body. That's false. <laughs> it's also false to say that God has a body unless we distinguish between the Godhead and the individual divine persons. It's also false to say every divine person has a, has a physical body of flesh and bone because the Holy Ghost doesn't yet. And so I want to make those kinds of distinctions between because we often get this kind of imprecise discussion where the missionaries go out and say, oh, God has a body, and the people they're talking to look at the 18-year-olds and just think, you guys are the stupidest people I've ever heard on earth. Um, and, you know, without the kinds of distinctions that we're talking about, it makes no sense. When we say a divine person has a body, we don't mean to limit God in his influence to the exercise of that body. So generally, I'm limited in what I can do to my bodily movements. Um, it may be that at some point we will be able to have an electronic device hooked up to the brain and all I really have to do is think, and I will be able to move things the same way I move my body. That would be a development that hasn't quite yet occurred yet, but we're on the cusp of having that kind of ability. So the kinds of bodily limitations that we've had throughout the history of humanity may not continue. And so the kinds of limitations we're talking about for humans to have a body are contingent limitations. That is, these things can change. They're not essential to having a body. Um, recognize that no person ever had the property of having walked on the moon until Neil Armstrong in July of 1969 walked on the moon, and then he had a property no human being had ever had before, the property of having walked on the moon. So when we're talking about what is essential to humans and properties that are common to humans, um, we have to recognize that what's common to humans, the properties that we have, can change. And, and we're working on that. And in fact, it's the goal of Mormonism that they will change. <laughs> Moreover, we want to say that God is not limited to his influence and the scope of his active power to what is within the range of his body to do. Um, God does not, um, you know, part the waters of the Red Sea by going down and blowing real hard on the water, um, as the, the biblical account would lead one to believe. Nor does he use his hands to separate real fast the water. Um, God is not limited in action to mere bodily movements. God transcends 
therefore, his body. That is, he can go beyond his bodily actions in his action. And in Mormon thought, even though we say colloquial, you know, in colloquial language, God has a body, we don't thereby mean to limit God in his activity to that body. We mean to say that God's spirit um, emanates, if you will, from his immediate presence to fill the cosmos, an entire universe and multiverse, <laughs> Um, the way that is analogous to the way that the light of the sun proceeds from the presence of the sun to warm and give life um, to things on earth and to give its light to all the other planets in the solar system, that kind of thing. So, in fact, this very analogy exists in DNC 88 um, and that, you know, God's influence transcends his mere physical presence. Um, even though it emanates from his physical presence. Now, the notion that it emanates, it's not intended to say that there is light that travels from God's body because then it would be limited by the speed of light and would take a very, very, very long time to get to the outer reaches of the cosmos. And God really wouldn't be able to direct things very well, nor would he be able to receive signals very well. So in Mormonism, I believe we're constrained to say that the light that we're speaking of is not limited by the laws that apply to physical light that we know, and that God can immediately act at all places at any time that he desires merely by willing it. And that will begin to sound like, well, now you're beginning to sound like a real Christian. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, But our scriptures say that, our scriptures assume that, and it must be. I mean, there's no way to say that God is merely limited. Uh, I, however, I will say that there are certain what I will call radical finitists in Mormonism, basically those who think that God is merely advanced engineering scientist, who has learned to be God over aeons of time and is technologically figuring out how to do things. Um, they're basically transhumanists, if I, I may add. And they believe that God is limited in the way that we are limited, um, and can only do things through technological means. Now, they believe that technology far transcends our present knowledge of technology so that maybe God has found a way to act immediately at all places in the universe at once, analogous to the way that we're on the cusp of being able to act anywhere um, beyond ourselves merely by thinking it in our brains, by linking to a uh, some kind of mechanical device to our brain that will transmit signals. But then we would have to admit that God is limited by the speed of light. And he couldn't transmit signals to Alpha Centauri very quickly, which, uh, you know, Proxima Centauri, which is its twin um, orbiting star, um, but they're both the closest to us. But, you know, they're, they're 4.3 light years away, and we would like to think that God could influence what's happening on Alpha and Proxima Centauri faster than 4.3 years when he decided to do it. So... <laughs> Um, th that's one way of thinking about it, but I do not believe that that is a very fruitful way of thinking about Mormonism. They do, they disagree with me, and I would be willing to concede that maybe my notion of what's possibly technologically is too limited, and if I properly understood what could be achieved through technology, it would be godlike. The next section here, which I have written down the most questions to, is titled God and Perfection. So you start this one out, and you'll go into this into another chapter a little more. But in Mormon thought, you start out with the lectures on faith. 
I think since a lot of people actually may not have even read them in our faith because they were taken out of their original place, can you briefly define what the lectures on faith were? Yeah. The lectures on faith were placed in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, and they constituted the doctrine of the church. The leaders of the church got together and kind of divvied up different um, lectures that they would write. Um, and then they got back together, reviewed them, and they all signed a, a paper that went on the front saying, this is what we believe and we trust the other members of our church believe as well. And they were intended to be lectures that would be given in the School of Prophets, essentially, that were the essential teaching of what is Mormon doctrine. And so they were very integral to early Mormonism. If somebody wanted to know what Mormons believed, they would go to the lectures on faith. And I think that most people have not properly recognized the genius and how intellectually robust the lectures on faith are. Um, I, it's my opinion, and, and I believe I can back it up well, that Joseph Smith did not write any of them except the most controversial of the lectures, which is lecture number five, which talks about the, the relation of the father and the son and the spirit. Um, but the lectures on faith are ingenious because, in my view, they more fully integrate the notion of us becoming um, as God is in the sense that we become so unified as one with each other and with God that we are mutually glorified and deified and that they still constitute the very best statement and essence of the notion of deification in Mormon thought. But they also um, express a, a basic assumption about the kind of being that God must be in order to be God. And the approach that they take to that, and this is an ingenious approach, the approach that they take to that is that God is minimally that kind of being in which we can have faith to save us, to save us from all enemies and all powers and anything that could prevent us from obtaining salvation. And when they use the term salvation, they're using something that is analogous to the present term of exaltation that we now use. That is becoming fully deified. So when they're talking about being saved, they're not talking merely about the moment of justification when we escape death and hell, which is what Protestants mean by salvation. They mean rather the full notion of exaltation where we become one in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, just as they are, to share fully in everything that they are and have in full deification. And so, in my view, the lectures on faith are still integral. I believe it was a mistake to remove them. Um, and I read them and am edified by them. And I commend them to uh, Latter-day Saints in particular and to others in general to take the time to go through them carefully and appreciate the genius of what they're dressing. Just so I guess clarify that. So they were at one point removed. So they were the doctrine of the Doctrine and Covenants. Anyway, so you've included them. I talk about it here in God and Perfection and kind of understanding, as you kind of laid out there, this concept of this Greek or Neoplatonic idea, which we'll talk about next chapter, but this greatest conceivable being versus a minimal adequate object of faith. And it's kind of two different views of beginning on why 
like how, how we come up with a god or why we would worship god at all and that's I guess we could say this topic is is basically how can we know that God is God or an object worthy of all of the adoration that we're supposed to give him according to the scriptures. And so that's kind of the main way you use them here. Um, the question I want to go over is, if you could summarize, what do the lectures on faith say a person needs to know about God in order to put their faith in him? What we're discussing here are basically two different ways to fill in the blank what are how do I know what the essential properties of God are? What are? How do I know what his attributes are? And one way says, well, whatever is greater for God to be, whatever is best for God to be, that's what he is. So if it's better to be omniscient than, than limited in knowledge, God is omniscient. If it's better for God to be outside of time than in time, then God is timeless. And so you look at it and say God is the God is the greatest conceivable being, in a, a, or He is being in a superlative sense, of which there could be none greater. Um, the lectures on faith, however, approach this not from a philosophical perspective, but from what I call a spiritual or this perspective, or the needs. Of a person in order to exercise faith in God and so what they're saying is minimally in the Christian tradition God is that being in whom we can have total trust and and, tr and you've got to understand that in Hebrew and Greek and Latin the words for trust and faith are essentially the same words <laughs> okay so I can trust God to save me from every power principality or anything that could make it so that I don't exist, so that I don't achieve um, salvation. God is that being who can deliver me. And so it's a, it's a more spiritual and interpersonal way of approaching the issue, how, what must I understand God to be? And it's one that fills in the blank by saying, God is that being who is worthy of your faith, um, of your complete trust, who in whom you can have um, the kind of trust that uh, will always be able to deliver you. And then you say, okay, what kind of being must God be in order to always deliver me? And the answer is, well, it seems like you would have to have superlative power because if there were a more par powerful being that actually existed, God couldn't deliver you. This may differ from the different approach, for instance. Well, what if I can imagine a being that's more powerful than the being who delivers me from the uh, most powerful actually existing um, threat to my salvation because God can beat whatever being that is. God doesn't have to have absolute power, but he does have to have power sufficient to overcome any challenges to my salvation or to, or that may threaten um, my well-being. And so they deliver a different notion of God to us in essence because if I, I can still imagine that there is a being who is greater, has more power, but given the approach that's outlined in the lectures on faith, God doesn't have to meet that requirement. I then pose the question because I think that it's important to realize the power of this kind of an argument. And I think that it is something, it's something that has a pull on me. Well, if you can even imagine an actual other being, um, to that extent, your commitment and faith and your willingness to worship God are limited. So, for instance, if I were to say to my wife, I love you completely with all my heart, and I'm totally committed to you, but of course, 
if there were a woman who's more beautiful than you, I would love her instead. <laughs> and so if I'm saying, well, okay, God is the greatest actually existing being and nothing can can really um, defeat God that actually exists. But I can imagine another being that if that being did exist, I would worship that being instead of the God that actually exists. To that extent, I'm saying to God, oh, you're second best. I can imagine a being that if that being existed, I'd be devoted to that being instead. And to me, that seems to say, hold it. <laughs> that means that my commitment to you is conditional on the happenstance that this greater being doesn't happen to exist. And that doesn't seem to really be faith to me. And so what I want to say is, recognize the power of this approach that has been laid out that is the alternative. Yes, God must be that being that can deliver me, but he also must be that being that is maximally great. Now, it may be that, that there, and I asked this question, and this is probably one of the questions that you were about to ask, but what if I'm thinking about my wife and I'm thinking, you know, is it even possible that there's another woman that is more beautiful than my wife? And as I sit here now in my chair in order to save my marriage, I say, and this is the truth, I actually believe it. For me, I can't imagine that there would be a more beautiful woman. She's so much a part of my life. We've shared raising children together. We've had good times and bad times and everything that we are together. I can't imagine a more beautiful person than my wife. It's not even possible. And so maybe maybe the kind of trust and faith I have in God is like that. I know interpersonally through revelation and, and my involvement with God that for me it's not even possible that there's a greater. And there's a logical problem that goes along with this. What if you know, I say, what is the greatest, you know, if there were a being that had more power than God, I would worship that being instead. Well, okay, it seems that God must be the most powerful being possible. But how much power is that? Yeah. <laughs> and so, is there a limit, uh, an upper limit to those things? Yeah, and so I'm saying, well, maybe maybe that's like saying God must God is like the greatest possible integer. And then I realize, hold it. There is no greatest possible integer. No matter who I worshipped, I would always have this problem that there could be somebody I can conceive to be more powerful. <laughs> Um, you know, and so maybe the very concept of um, the greatest conceivable being without limit is itself self-contradictory. Maybe the very notion is meaningless, like the greatest possible integer is meaningless. And maybe in my interaction with God, interpersonally, I know him so well that I know that there's no greater. And so as I look at this, I, I fill this in and say, God has to be that being which is worthy of worship, which means that God is maximally great. That is, God is the greatest combination of attributes that is possible. So for every attribute that admits of an absolute upper limit, okay, um, God is, is that. It's like on a golf course, the the best possible score you can have is 18. That's perfection. So there's an upper limit to the greatness you can have in golf. So if there are attributes that God has that are like that, he has it to, the, to that absolute perfection. But for any attribute that doesn't admit of an upper absolute limit, he has it to a maximal extent. That is, he has it so that there is no being that could possibly surpass him. God 
no matter how great, um, could grow, but he will always take into himself the greatness of all other beings so that as they become greater, he becomes that much greater also. And God is maximally great. He has every attribute to a degree sufficient to warrant our worship of him and our faith in him. And that's the approach that I ultimately endorse. Well, just to be an adequate object of faith, what is it that you need to be? Because you give this example of Mother Teresa. You say, what if basically God turned out to be someone like Mother Teresa, who was really good and you can always count on them, but would they really be something that you could put your faith in? Yeah, I mean, what? and this is saying, okay, if I'm going to accept that God is the greatest actually existing being, then I'm saying that God could be like Mother Teresa, that... Okay, Mother Teresa was the best person I could conceive of being as a human being. You know, she's wonderful. Um, so I believe that she's good, but this is a, a different kind of a question, and that is, is God good essentially um, and and couldn't fail to be good? So when I believe in Mother Teresa, or at least I believe that she was, you know, a great being, it seemed to many people that God couldn't just happen to be good. He has to be good. He couldn't fail to be good in order for me to have faith in him. Um, and that's a different kind of faith than I have in Mother Teresa. You know, at one point, she's dead now, so it's not possible any longer. But when I wrote the book, she was still alive. And so I, I asked the question, what if, you know, is it logically impossible that Mother Teresa run off and join a brothel and just say, I've had it. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and the answer, of course, is, you know, given where Mother Teresa is, I can't even imagine that that's possible. I couldn't lay awake at night worrying about it, but certainly is logically possible that she would have done so. And so the question is, must it be logically impossible for God to do evil or to do anything less than the greatest good? Or must it be logically possible for him to do so? And I'll leave that as an open question because we'll address it later. Um, but God, I would suggest, is maximally great with respect to his goodness. So on page 18 at the bottom, I define... Um, perfection in in terms of maximal greatness. So instead of referring to perfection as absolute completion in all respects, I think a more adequate view is that God's perfection is maximal. And that is analytically would be saying a being is maximally perfect, then it one possesses all of the great making properties it is possible for one being to possess, and two, for every great making property that admits of an intrinsic upper limit, such properties are possessed in their maximal degree. 18 on the golf course, in other words, and and three, for every great making property that does not admit of an intrinsic upper limit, such properties are possessed to agree unsurpassed by any other being except the perfect being at some later point in time, and four, for every great making property that conflicts with another such property, every such property is possessed, if at all, to the degree not inconsistent with the more preferable great making properties. So, for instance... If God is the most loving being, he can't also be the happiest being. Um, it would seem that God must feel sadness when people feel sadness, that he feels sad when people fail in their ability to achieve happiness or when they, they hurt each other or when little girls are raped and things like that. And so God's, God's happiness is not as complete and full as it could be, but God is also loving and empathetic to a maximal degree, and it is preferable that God be empathetic and loving to having a God that is perfectly blissful and happy in every conceivable way. And so those two attributes conflict, 
And so in terms of defining God, what I would say is, okay, God is happy to the extent that it's appropriate for God to be happy given the way the world actually is, that kind of thing. One of the essential properties of this greatest being that we're worshiping is that it actually has to exist. Whereas you've gone into like, you know, you could always conceive of a greater being, but that doesn't matter if you could conceive of it if it doesn't actually exist because you kind of have to have something that exists just, you know, it logically even yeah. even though you can think of something, it doesn't mean that you could worship it just because it doesn't actually exist. Right. And so we're going back to the thought experiment. Imagine that I have a God who can save most of the world, but not all of it. And I can imagine a being that can save all of the world. Okay. It so happens that the greatest possible being that exists is very powerful, very knowledgeable, and very good. And endeavors and does the best that it can always to uh, to reduce the amount of evil in the world. But I can conceive of a, a more powerful, more knowledgeable, and more effective being. Okay, that is one that can save everybody at the very least. But if this being doesn't actually exist, and the greatest actually existing being is so good and wonderful and powerful and knowledgeable that I can place my faith in it to at least a great extent, then it would seem proper for me to worship that being. Um, and it would not be wrong for me to worship that being. But it also seems to me to that extent, to the extent that I can imagine a being that can save everyone, that my my faith in this God is somewhat limited, that it's conditioned and in comparison to the faith that I would have if the other being existed. And so the question becomes, should I just refer to this other being as a superhuman or as a transcendent being, or should I refer to this being as God? And the answer that I come with, up with, I'm not quite sure using the word God for this being, the greatest actually existing being, is going to be sufficient to actually use the word God, not the way we use God, at least in our in our everyday practice of referring to God in the Judeo-Christian tradition. All right. Before we go into the final section here, I wanted to have kind of a side thing. In Mormon thought, we have a finite God, meaning not the sole provider of all existence, meaning we believe that, you know, there are other things limiting God's power, which we'll go into later, but, you know, that we are also coexisting with God and that all of nature in some form is coexisting with God and the rules that it goes by. So with that being the case, is this finite God really an object worthy of worship? I will give you an example for you answer. I've listened to a podcast, and I don't know if you've kept up on him, but you know this person named Dennis Potter. He used to be a Mormon. He's not anymore. And he is more into the philosophy of a guy named Spinoza. He asked the question, he said, if I came to this Mormon god, I don't think that I would be obligated to call him, you know, I don't think I'm obligated to worship him. It would be more like, you're a nice guy. Uh, thanks for telling me that you had some things to teach me, but you know, you're a contingent being off of these other eternal things, like whatever is limiting you, nature in itself, that's what's the ultimate. That there is something more ultimate than you, and therefore, like you've been saying in this argument, since there is something more ultimate, I should be worshipping that. Whereas you, you're you could like I I trust you have a good character, but the fact that you are contained in a body one and that you are somewhat limited we've taken it down a notch so it can't be this thing that requires you to worship it right and it, it's somewhat ironic i'll just make the observation 
for for any Spinozas to say that because Spinoza and what Dennis is talking about are pantheism, and it's it's quite arguable that in pantheism, what you're worshiping just is nature. <laughs> so, um, in any event, um, I think that the argument that's being made has some merit, um, and that the the persuasive power of that argument is something that has to be dealt with, and I deal with it throughout my book actually. Um, and that's why I define God as a maximally great being, not as the greatest actually existing being. And I reject the use of the mere term finite for God. So, for instance, ants and rocks and and uh, d- dogs are all finite beings, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, merely to calling God finite's got to be able to distinguish him from these other finite things as well. So we've got to come up with a bit more than just saying that God is finite, because all it means is that God is not the absolute. He's limited in some sense. And any being that's delimited in some sense, so that God isn't the totality of nature, for instance, is that God is not the absolute. He's limited in some sense. Um, And I would maintain that the concept of the absolute um, is really one that's nonsensical. It's a bigger argument. Um, I've given the argument elsewhere, though. And that is the necessity. Anytime we're using concepts, we're, we're delimiting. And so, and God couldn't possibly be the absolute unlimited in every respect unless you thought of God as as unlimited in being dumb and unlimited in unkindness um, and those kind of things as well. <laughs> and so we couldn't possibly be mean by God simply the absolute or unlimited. Um, that would be nonsense as well. And so the, the, this kind of discussion for me is not a very useful discussion because it's so vague it really doesn't get us very far. Um, but I think that the merit of saying, I want to say that God is not merely a finite God. And saying that God is limited in some respects, I do not thereby mean to say he's limited in all respects. And so we'd have to have this discussion and the kind of discussion, and I'm familiar with the discussion that Dennis has, and I think it's not a very helpful discussion. And so um, I think that we would need to discuss the ways in which God is limited. He's limited, for instance, to in space and time when he acts. He is limited in um, the effects that he can have if he leaves people free. He's limited in his ability to curtail freedom. Because he loves people, he's limited in his ability to have bliss and happiness un- unimpaired, <laughs> those kinds of things. These are all points that Charles Hartshorn makes very well, by the way, in a book called The Divine Relativity. Um, where he adopts what's known as a form of panentheism. So pantheism is the view that God is everything that exists in any way. Basically, God is the universe as we know it. Yeah. Like literally. Yeah, exactly. Panentheism is a a difficult view to define um, quickly, but quickly it is that God influences and is influenced by everything in the universe, okay? So that's panentheism, which is what Charles Hartshorn is arguing for. I recommend his book, The Divine Relativity, where he answers most of these kinds of questions, I think, very adequately. In in summary, what I think we want to say about God and perfection is that God must have a certain kind of perfection. He can't be limited in in the ways that would be inconsistent with our exercising faith in him and worshiping him. He can't be limited in the sense that um, he's merely just the greatest 
actually existing being, even if that being is wonderful and good and powerful and knowledgeable. We mean more than that when we talk about God, and God so therefore has a certain kind of perfection. Um, but we can't think of it as absolutely unlimited perfection because some things don't, you know, some things ad- admit of an absolute upper limit, and some do not. So we couldn't say that, well, God is like the greatest possible integers we already discussed. So it's very careful um, to discuss God in a way that um, delimits what we mean by perfection. Because in talking about perfection, we're actually now saying, okay, I can now get some kind of a handle on the ways that I believe not only can we understand the use of the word God, but we must understand the use of the word God, in particular if we understand God to be um, both a personal being and a particular person, um, which certainly within the uh, Christian tradition we, we use God, and in the Judeo-Christian tradition we use God to mean, um, and probably also within Islam and ancient Zoroastrianism. Um, and so now we have some way of actually discussing whether or not the Mormon view of God could be possibly be adequate. And that's the importance of introducing the notion of perfection and God and talking about the different ways that the word God is used. So, the next section, and I will admit probably the most foreign for just the common thinker to think about, kind of the more abstract, is it's titled God and Possible Worlds. Let me just introduce it with kind of the definition you give or an, an example, and then you can just kind of take it from there. You say, a possible world is a complete set of the way things are or could be. It includes not only what is, but also what could be if the actual world that does exist were different. For example, it is possible that the Detroit Tigers, rather than the Baltimore Orioles, may have won the World Series in 1967 meaning that's logically possible that that could have happened, I guess that's about as far as my understanding goes. So what's, can you help me out with the conceivable world versus possible world and why it's important to this discussion? Well, a conceivable world, any world that is coherently conceivable is a possible world. So a possible world is the largest possible set of consistent propositions that would describe a way a world could be. Put in a more colloquial way, if you can think of the of a way the world could be without contradicting yourself, then that's a possible way the world could be, and it's a possible world. So, for instance, it's possible to imagine a world in which President Obama wasn't elected as president in 2008. It's possible to imagine a world where human beings have fins and can, and can breathe underwater. All of these things are logically possible, and so we can construct alternative ways of seeing the world that are logically consistent. But when we talk about possible world semantics, what we're talking about is how do we develop a semantics that allows us to recognize what really is consistently conceivable. So, for instance, I give this example. Let's say we have a world, we'll call it arid, in which there is no water. And so the proposition there's no water, no um, water in arid is a true proposition. It's not a possible world um, that arid is also possible if we say that this proposition is true. There's water on arid. <laughs> okay, so we if we come up with two propositions that are inconsistent with each other, 
we have a logical contradiction. An easy way of saying that is simply that if you're thinking of a world and it's inconsistent because it's not even possible that it be that way, then it's not a logically possible world. It's not possible that the world contained 50-foot cats um, because if they got that big, they would they would collapse under their own weight and all of their internal organs would cease to be able to function as we know cats. Now, it's certainly logically possible, however, that there be a cat that's 50 foot tall. So I make a distinction between a world that could actually be physically. Um, so, for instance, it's not physically possible that there be a human being that jumps a 50-story foot building in a single bound. But certainly it's logically possible that a human being jump a 50-story building in a single bound. So I'm distinguishing between um, what we're talking about in terms of this is the way the world actually is and the way the world could possibly be in terms of logical possibility. And it's important to make the distinction. And so if I'm talking about a possible world, I'm not talking about the way things could physically be. I'm talking about the way they could logically be. It's possible that there be mermaids in possible logical worlds. It's, however, not physically possible, okay, <laughs> given the current uh, physiology of human beings. So, and fish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, the distinction that I'm making, I think, is an important one because what I want to say, and I'm going to later have this discussion, I'm setting up the discussion I want to say that the world where God knows everything that we're going to do before we do it and the world in which we freely do what we're going to do isn't a possible world. Those two things can't both obtain in the same world. And so I'm introducing the notion of possible worlds so that I can later address that kind of an issue. Um, so I want to introduce um, two other kinds of, of necessity. So if something's logically necessary, then it's necessary in terms of the the meaning of the words. So it's not possible for there to be a married bachelor because a bachelor means an unmarried male. And if I say that this bachelor is married, I'm contradicting myself because I'm saying this person who is an unmarried male is a, is a married person. And of course that's not possible. There's another type of necessity that I talk about and that is nomological necessity. Nomos is the Greek word for law. And so I'm saying is this is law like necessity. In our world, it is necessary that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit because that's the way molecules actually act. And so that's a type of nomological or law-like necessity. Okay, And at least for now, I don't think that there are any other terms that are really essential except for the term of logical compossibility. If something is logically compossible, then it's possible for two assertions to both be true in the same possible world. Um, and so I, I bring up the notion in the actual world, um, Socrates had a wife named Xanthippe and, um, it's possible, however, that Socrates could have been a bachelor. Um, it's logically possible. However, um, it's not logically possible, um, that we now have a world where Socrates was not married to Xanthippe. And so that's a, I'm introducing the notion of past factual necessity, which is another kind of necessity saying I can't change the past of necessity because it's the past. And so I have all these notions of necessity, and I think it's probably better to discuss those notions when we have a concrete problem in front of us rather than abstractly.